Welcome to Encounter Grace, where we come face-to-face with God's work in the world for our good. Join host Jason McKnight as we explore practical issues of community, theology, and leadership in everyday life. Hey, welcome to Encounter Grace. We're so glad you're here. I'm Jason McKnight, and as always, I'm here with Ben Hendricks, and I want you to picture the scene with me. It's a delivery room in the hospital. The nurses are gowned up, the doctor's there, the mom is in labor, contractions pushing the littlest member of the family toward daylight. Every few moments, another cry of joy and pain. Dad is anxiously holding his wife's hand, wishing he could help, secretly glad he can't do more. (laughs) Action and energy coalesce around baby is finally here and everything in the room stops and everyone holds their breath until that first breath of air fills the little lungs and that first cry comes out of the mouth and then we all heave a giant sigh of relief and start high-fiving and crying and all that kind of stuff what an exhausting exhilarating joy-filled life-giving moment well I'm glad you're with us today, because what we're going to talk about today is the joy and miracle and beauty and wonder of life and of birth and life in the womb. Every January for 50 years has been a time, at least in our country, where we reflected on the sanctity of life. And in the Roe v. Wade era, it was a time for a lot of people to make political statements and um, seeking legal frameworks. Uh, but let us ignite our imaginations and let us think about wonder and marvel of what's going on in the womb and what is this little thing called a baby and how to wonder. Well, in order to do that, we've invited a good friend to many in Eastern North Carolina, a good friend to Susan and me and to Ben and Janessa, Dr. Frank Gay, to share some of his journey and studies and joys. So Frank, thank you for taking the time to be with us. You're welcome. Thanks so much, Jason. It's good to be here. We are glad you're here, and we just had lunch together, so we're all enjoying a great, <laughs> great time of fellowship. Um, and I, I apologize; I should have asked permission to call you Frank. <laughs> Please, uh, I'll be offended if you don't. Okay, good. <laughs> you know, here in public, I don't know how it's supposed to work with <laughs> with folks. So let's establish your credentials. <laughs> Why do we have you here after all? Uh, how long have you practiced? Um, I finished my training in 1990, so 32 years ago. Um, and after 1990 spending... is 32 years ago. Uh, so. <laughs> wow, we're all scary. Oh, okay. wow. the math, but I think so. Wow. Actually, it's now 2023, so it's but after four years in the Air Force, have spent the last 28 years here in Greenville, North Carolina. Greenville, North Carolina at Vidant. Oh, yes, Vidant now ECU Health. It's changed its name several times. Okay, <laughs> I actually didn't know that either. I'm I'm out of the baby side. So, how many babies have you delivered? How, do, do you keep track? I have not kept track. Um, it would kind of be nice to know, but I've sometimes guessed around seven thousand. But it's a it's a hard number to keep up with. Wow, depends a little bit how you count them. So. <laughs> Twins count for two. <laughs> seven thousand. So. Well, it depends on if there are two of us there, yeah, right. particularly during training. Yeah, that's <laughs> so. true. Is that like sacks where you split the birth? Like... <laughs> wow. So, you know, 7,000 babies uh, owe their lives <laughs> to you, including, uh, including our firstborn. That's right. And boy, it got serious. Well, we'll talk about that a little later. It got serious <laughs> when the cord was wrapped around his... his uh, what got you into medicine? Um, I, th- I think I've always wanted to be involved in a profession where I could help people. I mm-hmm. felt that medicine was a noble calling. It was an opportunity to make a difference in people's lives. Uh, so kind of through high school, I thought that would be something to do. I also felt I had an aptitude for it. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, while I didn't know this then, Aristotle's words of where does my uh, skill set and the needs of the world intersect as far yeah. as vocation, yep. quickly saw that as being something um, where I would fit. Um, while I was in high school, I uh, burned myself making popcorn, and I spent two and a half weeks in the hospital. Uh, this was probably before length of stay uh, also criteria. Also before air poppers. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. It was the oil in the uh, popcorn. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, but um, I did – God did use that time to shape me. I realized that I was very well cared for physically mm. and also as a person by the people who were caring for me. And so that solidified that desire to, to go into medicine. Yeah, to help people. And you did not grow up in North Carolina. I did not. I grew up in New York. I thought I was coming to the Deep South for my education and um, <laughs> met Jesus and met my wife, and here I am. <laughs> now, that's what we want to talk about next. Uh, well, Debbie. Yeah. Jesus. Debbie would be a good one, too. <laughs> so. We love Debbie. Um, but when did you come to Christ? So you didn't... You, you, met Christ in North Carolina. I did. I grew up going to a church, um, but the idea of a personal relationship and of me needing uh, to uh, somehow be forgiven for my sin was not something that was taught. Mm-hmm. Um, as a freshman, uh, I was quickly, uh, by other people, recognized that I wasn't a Christian before I did, and so probably the first part in my conversion was recognizing that I was not a Christian. And some mm-hmm. uh, dear brothers um, led a Bible study, met with me one-on-one, and gradually came to... Um, believe that um, the gospel was real and that Christ had died and that I had a, a, a need to walk in that. And this was at a secular university. Uh, it would be at Duke. Many would, Duke. Most would describe that as a secular <laughs> university. <laughs> I've heard that. I've heard that. <laughs> so. but, but, and, and Friends on the Dorm. Yes. And yeah. fr- so Friends on the Dorm took an interest, you prayed for you and met with you and so mm-hmm. on and so forth. Wow. You know, like it's, we, we often think, oh, everything's, it, it is easy to think everything's going wrong in big state schools or secular universities, except that also God has Christians there. He, he does, and he's at work there, and he's in, in there a life at a time. Yeah, so, yeah, one life. Uh, at a time. And that would be true whether you're practicing medicine or selling shoes on the street. It's um, mm-hmm. that's true. Now, well, Ben, I'm doing all the asking here. Yeah, <laughs> let, me, I mean, let me ask one more, and then I'll, I'll let you jump in. Okay. Sure. <laughs> well, I, I realize there's one more in this little section of how. As you sort of on a global scale, because maybe we'll get into details, but um, just over this, the arc of mm-hmm. your career since 1990, um, how have you watched God work in and through your life in medicine? Yeah. Like what, what, when you look back and try to put it on a bumper sticker, what have you seen? Yeah, it'd be, it'd be a hard bumper sticker, but one of them is that, <laughs> that the gospel's given me an opportunity to see God at work. And... Um, and medicine is a way to do that, but it's an opportunity to see God at work in pushing back against the effects of the fall. Hmm. Uh, with the fall, um, everything changed, including sickness and disease, um, and I get to see God at work in his restoring of his creation. Um, so that's been part um, part of that. Um, I've grown to see that I'm typically a instrument in that, that it's, it really is God is the one who is at work. Um, I've been in one place where they, uh, you know, somebody touch, cuts down a tree. You don't, you don't thank the ax. You thank the person who yielded the ax. Uh, that is how I've tried to look at medicine. And that, you right. know, God would use whatever it is that we do to um, bring glory to himself and to heal his, um, mm. heal his creation. Another way that I've seen God at work is through countless coincidences of, um, you know, God allowed me to be here with this person at this time. This is not something I would have organized. This is not something I could have planned. 
Um, they ended up on my schedule seemingly by accident or by coincidence, but the, God obviously had a larger story um, mm. going on there. Uh, with that. And I think finally, more recently, I've increasingly seen myself as a wayfarer, to use somebody else's word, um, um, in life with my patients, with the people I'm caring for. God is at work in both of our lives, and we are walking through this together. We intersect for a period of time, sometimes very briefly, sometimes for a longer period of time, but we are wayfarers in this life that is moving towards Jesus. Mm. Wayfarers in this life moving mm-hmm. towards Jesus. Love that. Yeah. I think it's such a cool thing, and I know we're going to – we'll touch on this more a little bit later through the interview, but I, mean, I just think of every time that I've been around doctors, like in major it's, – it's it's around major life changes mm-hmm. and life experiences and how it's such a cool thing. Uh, just in the past little bit, like the main times I've been in a hospital are with my wife. I mean, whether the, mm-hmm. the birth of Harper or first um, or just recently uh, with a, a minor surgery, and, and in each place we've had like a, a – like a believer as a surgeon mm-hmm. or a doctor mm-hmm. and it's just it's made all the mm-hmm. difference like it's such a place of shepherding a place of outreach like it's, it's such a cool thing i mean it's a great opportunity it is an opportunity um in medicine and illness we are stretched to the limits of our being and mm-hmm. whether it's a joyous mm-hmm. thing or a sad thing uh so one of the privileges of medicine is being able to walk with people during these formative times of their lives yeah, it's a yeah. privilege to be there amen mm. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, I'm, so seven thousand births. <laughs> yeah. You've seen all things uh, probably at this point when it comes to birth. Like one of the things I we wanted to talk a good bit about just what is the like about the just the miracle of life. I mean, you get to see it all the time. And so, can you kind of walk us through like what are the stages of preborn life? Um, you know, it still is a wonder to me that a woman can get pregnant and have a child. As much mm-hmm. as I think I understand yeah. about it, um, it is a it is a miracle. Um, as I think most of your listeners know, um, conception is, is something that we don't fully understand, but there's an egg and a sperm um, that are placed in the same body, and then those join and become mm. one and become something new. Um, that, that happens out at the end of the fallopian tube. It takes about five days for this now fertilized egg to travel back down to the fallopian tube where it implants in the uterus, uh, the mother's womb. Uh, the that uterus has to be sufficiently prepared to make a hospitable environment mm-hmm. for that embryo to now um, grow. And, and as soon as that happens, there are multiple changes that begin to happen in the mother to prepare her for um, for childbirth, first of all, which um, involves that um, she doesn't have a period and that continues, mm-hmm. to, to, continues to grow there. Um, after implantation, uh, the embryo begins to grow and quickly divides into two different parts, uh, a placenta and the embryo and fetus. Uh, the placenta is a wonderful organ. organ, organ. Um, it uh, provides nourishment for the fetus um, throughout pregnancy, but it also protects the fetus. The, the baby is genetically different than mom, um, and normally her immune system would attack and reject anything um, that, that is genetically different. If somebody has a kidney transplant, we have to give them all kinds of drugs to protect the transplanted kidney from the, the host recipient. Uh, the placenta does that. Um, mm-hmm. And so this placenta um, both provides for nourishment but also protection for the embryo. Um, and that happens right away. Um, also right away, there begin to become changes in the mom, uh, increasing amounts of uh, her blood volume begins to increase almost immediately so that she has increased blood in order to provide for and nourish this, this growing child. Um, the organs begin to develop. Um, 
They, that mm-hmm. process starts um, early on. Uh, the uterus provides a hospitable place and then gradually over a period of time gets to a place where it begins to contract and out comes the baby. <laughs> wow. Most of the time. <laughs> so, yes. I mean, I mean, that's just, even to tell that in mm-hmm. such a concise way, it's just marvelous. It, it is. Yeah. That the mom, you know, the placenta is an organ that, that allows so that the mom doesn't reject mm-hmm. the baby growing inside the embryo. I mean, even that piece of it is... I mean, evolution's a wonderful thing. Mm-hmm. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> How that happen? <laughs> well, don't know. <laughs> so let me ask you this: um, Most Christians would say life begins at conception. Is that what you would say, and why? Um, I would um, absolutely. It is at the moment of conception where a genetically and biologically unique. Uh, human uh, or creature is made. Uh, The sperm and the egg are genetically similar to mom and dad. They are, um, in some sense, not new. But when the sperm and the egg unite at that point, a new creation has Mm. has occurred um, by every way that we would describe it. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a really helpful answer for a couple of reasons. One, I mean, it's it's logical, but maybe even more importantly, it's biblical. Mm -hmm. But and it's not just based on ethics as well. Like, so often when we kind of look at the world of like of when does when does this start when does life happen we start mm-hmm. defining that line we all we go well we don't we don't want to write an ethical line for at the end of life as well like we just think of it in that those kind of terms but it's helpful to think of it mm-hmm. like that there's a logical and a biblical mm-hmm. idea and argument and, behind and this and as well there, there yeah. is a fundamental change when an egg and a sperm are separate that now they are united, yeah. something new has been made and formed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's helpful. Yeah, and to say, oh, well, it's later at viability or it's later at childbirth, mm-hmm. yeah. that that doesn't make any sense because no. there's not something new then. It's just our yeah, technology. It's, it's, a, it's a change in, with childbirth, it's a change in, nothing more than a change in location. Location, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. um, you mentioned this already a little bit, but can you walk us through uh, kind of those major benchmarks of, development for a child? People often ask, well, when does the heart start beating? And the kind of classic answer is 21 to 23 days after fertilization, the um, early um, structures that become a heart um, begin to um, uh, begin to beat. We're able to typically see that at around um, four weeks or 28 days after um, uh, conception. Um, there is this confusion between we talk about menstrual dates and uh, gestational dates, and we don't right. have to get your <laughs> group right, into right. that. But 28 days post conception, we can typically see a uh, with today's ultrasounds, um, mm-hmm. see some sense of a flicker or cardiac activity. Um, most of the organs are formed by 12 weeks, um, and that from that point on, the baby grows, um, right. and um, and there aren't, if you will, new organs. A lot of them developing at that time. They, they certainly change, but. Um, the, the the rest of pregnancy is a growth kind of thing. So formation is the first twelve weeks, and then mm-hmm. growth. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, they're, simplifying it, yeah, and, and yeah. I, I wouldn't. Yeah. Go <laughs> <laughs> that made sense to me, though. Like, yeah. oh, so all the organs are there, and now they grow bigger. Twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen weeks, right. and, yeah. and on the way. That's fascinating. When do you tell the sex? How can you tell when? Well, the sex, of course, is determined at the moment of fertilization. Okay. Um, if there is a X-containing um, chromosome in the sperm, um, the child will be female. Um, if there's a Y-containing chromosome, it will be male. 
Um, we can um, often see that on ultrasound by seeing male genitalia pretty easily, usually by 16 weeks. Um, there's a lot going on way before that. A more recent technology has uh, allowed us to see fragments of fetal DNA in the maternal circulation. So we mm. understand that, that the placenta allows some of this DNA to cross the, the placenta. Um, the placenta, of course, is fetal in origin, and so it also has fetal DNA. So there are fragments of this DNA floating around inside the maternal circulation, and by 10 weeks we can now um, look at that and we can tell if it's a boy or a girl just because we see Y chromosomes or X chromosomes in the maternal circulation from, a, from the fetus. A blood test in the right, mom, right? And you can see mm -hmm. fragments of of, of fetal, fetal DNA. Fetal DNA. Wow, that's so, that's so, unbelievable. So, yeah. It is sometime before that, though. You know, by around eight weeks, that the uh, the testes is, are beginning in a male child, beginning to secrete testosterone, and the genital tract begins to develop along a male mm -hmm. um, pathway. So. And that's at eight weeks. Yeah. yeah see that. Mm -hmm. What is the earliest where we are now? Because I know this moves as technology changes, but um, preterm baby, what's the yeah. earliest that we're seeing now? Yeah. Um, for, and we have a great neonatal we, we, we have a great neonatal unit um, yeah. just up the road. And so that's, uh, that's up. But yes, through the work of neonatologists um, and certainly several medications and, and uh, maybe a little bit of what we can do on the uh, obstetrical side, um, it, for a long time, was felt to be around 24 weeks. Um, uh, at, at around 23 weeks, you'll have close to a 50% um, hmm. survival um, rate, um, and then there'll be some that will um, uh, some some that will live uh, prior to that. But uh, yeah, 55 weeks, 55% of infants born at 24 weeks will survive. 25% um, at around 23 weeks. So, wow. Um, um, and so. God's very efficient in the way he makes us, um, and the fetus, of course, does not have to breathe. Um, the fetus mm -hmm. needs to pump blood. The fetus needs to have a liver that does some things and, uh, and other organs, but does not need to breathe. Oxygen is provided through the placenta. And so one of the last organs to mature or get ready to work are the lungs. Uh, and so that's one of the challenges with preterm birth is now this child um, no longer connected to the placenta needs to be able to breathe, and, and that's the challenge to oxygenate it. Because lungs are later in the process, but normally. now they're yeah. Yeah, normally, yeah, yeah. But now they're required to be working. Right. Yeah. Uh, so tell us then about lungs and liver. And I was reading, so I don't know. Frank, maybe yeah. <laughs> maybe you don't. Maybe you think this isn't, and, and everybody knows this. And it's like first semester class at med school. To me, this was unbelievable to think of how it works. Um, that the lungs and the liver have to come right on on track the moment the first breath, and mm -hmm. that God's worked it all. And um, tell us a little bit about that. Just give sure. us a little marvel. A little, little bit, a little, little bit. So for for the fetus, the oxygenated blood comes in through the placenta, goes through the liver and is pumped into the heart where it bypasses the lungs and goes immediately across the heart um, into the part of the heart that pumps blood preferentially to the brain um, and then the rest of the body. And uh, the reason is there's no oxygen in the lungs. There is no air inside uh, right. the lungs uh, prior to birth. And so it bypasses that. Um, when the baby's born and takes uh, his or her first breath, um, all of a sudden that changes and the baby begins to make half of its blood go to the lungs where it can receive oxygen and come back and then go out to the body, which is, of course is what is happening to you and me right now. Um, our, our heart pumps blood both to the heart or both to the lungs and to the body. 
Um, and the fetus has to do that with that first breath. Um, and so the blood flow um, ceases to go across the heart and rather goes out to the lungs and immediately comes back. Um, and that bypasses the, the liver. We don't have all this blood coming back from the placenta. Um, and so as soon as the umbilical cord is cut, that stops. That's amazing. <laughs> that, that's just amazing. Like, <laughs> it is. Hey, ben, you got Ben with yeah. this. He's almost got the smolder. <laughs> that's amazing. Did that just happen? I mean, it's like, I, incremental I, know evolution, my, ben. Incremental I know my daughter's evolution. really smart, but I didn't know she was that talented. <laughs> Damn. Well, well, that, but that, you were that smart when you oh, were born, what, too. What happened yeah, after exactly. that? That's the question. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that was when I was reading um, Wit and Wicker, their mm -hmm. book, A Meaningful World, how genius uh, explains, you know, how, how genius can't, you cannot have genius in a world without a genius behind it, mm -hmm. without God. Mm -hmm. And, and that, that paragraph or two alone, I've come back to that 10 times because I'm like, that's why it doesn't work for there not to be God in the mix mm -hmm. and it just to be eons of incremental evolution because you can't have a system that's not used mm -hmm. be ready to be used. Mm -hmm. has to be designed. Yeah. And uh, the, the other part of it that's, to me, equally taking care of pregnant women is there are immediately changes in the mom. Uh, during pregnancy, her blood volume is increased by 50%. All childbirth involves some blood loss. Um, she is very well prepared for that blood loss in a way that you and I are not, or she is not when she's not pregnant. Right. Um, and that process begins to go back immediately with childbirth uh, as well. And wow. so... Um, and then the other thing that, that obviously happens is um, her body is preparing for lactation throughout pregnancy. And then as soon as the child is born, there are changes in the breast that allow colostrum to begin to be made so that she can now feed this child. Yeah, <laughs> that's unbelievable. Yeah, that's right. And it wasn't needed before the child mm -hmm. was there. Right. Yeah. So there wasn't a need to have it. And again, God's very efficient in how he does this. So. <laughs> he really is. Well, tell us about, if you can, I mean, you know, 7,000 babies. You must have you must have just been on on your knees with joy at some of the miracles or experiences. Yeah. I mean, what's so some are fun and you just have to laugh. Um, I remember one where um, I was doing a C-section on uh, a woman who did not know whether she was having a boy or a girl. And rather than um, tell her, I would often just hold the baby up and they can learn that the, the same time. Um, and for her, as I uh, held, held up the child over the drape, uh, the penis that she was looking at obviously worked because he peed immediately all over her face all over her. <laughs> um, in the moment of um, um, delivery. That's so um, great. I'm sure it was not the first time that she was um, urinated on by her child. But that, <laughs> last that, time, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, it was the first no, time. No, it was, yeah, it was not the last time. No, <laughs> Um, a second one, uh, and I, I've, this is one that happened um, many years ago now, but I was taking care of someone pregnant with twins, and throughout the pregnancy, she was concerned about one of the twins who wasn't moving as much as the other, and we kind of label them A and B um, during the course of pregnancy, but B just didn't move as much as A, and, and we would do tests, and everyone looked fine, but B wasn't moving as much as A, and um, I was able to deliver the babies and, you know, they were both fine and all was good. And I've known this woman now for quite a long time. Um, when the babies were two, B wasn't moving as much as A. When the kids went to middle school, B didn't move as active, wasn't as active as A. And now they're both adults uh, <laughs> and B is not as active as A. And just type under, B, uh, type well, yeah, yeah, no, yeah, I wasn't going to type them, but, but just the, the, the sense that not only are we physically being 
formed, but our in some way our our personalities, our nature, our being are obviously um, evident in utero, and you you see these things that occur before birth that um, carry on um, after birth, and, and that's um, you know neat to neat to see. I'm um, sure I heard Daniel singing. <laughs> Yeah. Only because you were singing to him throughout Susan's pregnancy, <laughs> singing so, off key and everything. So <laughs> uh, there was one last story that that comes to mind. This was another twin delivery, um, and the delivery of, of twins are a little bit more stressful. Um, once mm. the first one comes out, um, it's not like things are done. Um, we're usually we're in a delivery room that has the ability to do a C-section. There's a team from the NICU there. I have things to do. Of course, mom's labor is not done because she has another child to uh, to deliver, and we. Uh, have to kind of prepare for um, many contingencies in, in that moment. Um, and so we were doing that. And in this case, it, it took 30 or so minutes for the second twin to be born, that she was just laboring and, and all that. Mm. And as it turned out, the, um, the woman's mother was in the delivery room. And I looked over, and sh- she, who had been you know, keenly involved in the labor of her daughter up until then, um, was now off in a corner holding her grandchild, just staring into this newborn life, totally oblivious to the fact that we were doing all these things with her daughter and the birth of the second uh, grandchild. And, and just the, the, the innate joy that she had looking into the eyes of, of her um, grandchild. So um, it, it's, it's obvious to, to everyone, even in the craziness of a delivery room. So, I mean, Ben, what was it like when Harper was born? Uh, I think I've blocked all of that out of my memory. Yeah, I had a traumatic experience, and mine went completely fine. Or, well, so I, I feel for everybody who had to really go through it. Well, I mean, in general, men would not do very well in labor. Our pelvises are actually shaped different, and the baby wouldn't fit out real well. But I think my personality, uh, Our personality too, <laughs> wouldn't do it either. So. No, it's true. You know, women are stronger. They're stronger. We are wusses. <laughs> We got more muscles, <laughs> and we'll defend our families. But man, man, a mama bear. Um, and I remember, and I, we referenced this earlier, but when when our oldest was born, and you you were delivering him, and um, I was going to cut the cord, but he came out with the cord wrapped around his neck and his arm up in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I mean, you went into business mode. <laughs> I mean, it was like everyone everyone knew exactly that. Yeah, this is this is really serious. Let's get it straight right mm-hmm. away. And Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> we'll let you cut it next time. <laughs> well, we tried that the next time, but uh, Daniel, he came out too fast. I think I don't remember. So he said he cut it himself. <laughs> Daniel's pretty self-reliant. Well, and then actually, Frank, you, so this pivots then yeah. to another part of our conversation, but you delivered our third son yes. who died in the womb. Mm-hmm. And I know that wasn't the first time you've had to shepherd people through difficulties, mm-hmm. whether at birth or trying to, you know, conceive and have birth or things like that. But um, you were such a gift to us then. How did you, I mean, do they teach that in med school, how to shepherd people? No. <laughs> I mean, short, 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 answer. short answer is probably yeah, not. So yeah. how did you become such a good shepherd there? And you were not going to say you're good. So I, yeah, yeah, I don't know that I'm good. Yeah, you know, the, the theoretical answer to um, your question is to, and this would be true for members of the church, really, with any suffering, but to try and develop empathy, which is a little bit different than sympathy. Hmm. Uh, Empathy being the idea of um, 
me trying to understand how somebody feels in a, per, in a particular situation rather than just saying that situation is bad or that situation is hard. Um, um, and that, um, so that would be the kind of big theoretical um, part of that. Um, you reminded me of um, something that I said to Susan and you um, right after Joshua was born that uh, there was nothing that she could have done to have caused this or prevented that. And that comment grew out of an awareness that that's the first place our minds tend to go when something hard happens. Mm -hmm. What could I have done that would have caused this? How could I have prevented that? And so to acknowledge that and to to empathize with that she's going to be having that feeling. Reg mm -hmm. and, and she had nothing to do with causing that. Uh, causing right, Joshua's right. death, but to remind her of what maybe at some level she knows to be true, but um, to remind her of uh, and to think about what somebody would be feeling in that situation, mm -hmm. I think is 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 helpful. Um, mm -hmm. So um, so yeah, um, I could speak some other thoughts to that if you'd yeah, like. You know, yeah. it, they, you know, when you think about Job, uh, the story of Job, <laughs> Job's friends did lots of things wrong. Um, but the first thing they did was sit with Job and not say anything for a week. Um, and that would be another part of, of helping to walk with people through hard times um, is to, to try and say very little. M many people have said uh, something along the lines of um, don't just say something, stand there um, when <laughs> trying to um, talk, about, um, uh, talk about that. There are lots of things that are not good to say. Um, and <laughs> uh oh, I think I've said them all. <laughs> and, you know, maybe we all said something, uh, you know, that has been hurtful, but uh, there's an author, Kate Bowler, and has written some about this, but some of the things that she says that would be good things not to say are, um, you know, God must have wanted an angel, um, which is, you know, that's a pretty mean God to take my child away from me to make an angel. It makes God look sadistic. And of course, angels are not made from, from dead people. Uh, and, and Except for Ben. He's going to be an angel. <laughs> um, another thing that she writes, uh, and this isn't a book, Everything Happens for a Reason um, and Other Lies I've Loved, um, is that phrase of, well, everything happens for a reason. And that does suggest that it is, you know, my sin, my action that has caused this to happen. Um, and she writes in that book, when someone is drowning, the only thing worse than failing to throw them a life preserver is handing them a reason. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so to to try and explain into somebody's suffering um, is is not helpful. Uh, another thing that's not helpful is, um, well, at least it's not X. Um, and compare this suffering to something yeah. that, that could be could be worse, which really does minimize the suffering that, that you're um, mm -hmm. um, feeling. Um, you fed me this question in advance, and so the other thing that I thought of, the second answer, those are some things to maybe say and not to say and to try and empathize. Um, but the other one would actually come to you, Jason, as, mm -hmm. a, as a pastor, and, and that's the opportunity that we have to prepare ourselves for suffering before it happens, um, to be shepherd in that. We are all going to suffer and, and experience loss in some kind of, of, of way, and um, we need to kind of have the toolbox to, to right. deal with that. Um, the, the time to quote Romans 8.28, that God works all things together for the good of those who love him, isn't when you have lost your child. Right. But to have that um, be preached to you, be taught to you before and after, um, that can be, be helpful. So. I remember at my dad's funeral, and back in those days you had cassette tapes, and, mm -hmm. and somehow I got a copy of the tape. And so over the years, I've, I've listened to it a few times. And um, but the but Keith Price, who preached uh, for my 
dad's funeral and he, one of the things he says just never forget in the darkness what you've learned in the light mm. yeah. but yeah. if you haven't learned it in the light you don't have it in the yeah. darkness so romans 8 yeah. 28 is you need to know it in the light right <laughs> but then you don't need to spout it off right. to someone in the in mm-hmm. the dark times um it's interesting because a few years ago our elders here at grace said we need to help people walk through suffering And so we put together a pastoral letter on suffering, and it's on Mm. our website, and people can download it, and they do. And we sent it out to everyone when it was first published about four or five years ago. But just some of those, some of these ideas of of why does it happen and how, and then also how do we walk through it? And Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and really, I think the high point of Job was the friend sitting quietly. Right. (laughs) Until God shows up. Yeah. (laughs) Then that's the high point. Always ends with God. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Dr. Gay, I'm curious, do you... Uh, I'm Frank. Okay. <laughs> Here. So, Dr. Gay, uh, <laughs> do you pray with, uh, like, your patients or, I mean, when the ladies come in? I'm just curious. I, like, I do. Yeah. I do. Um, I will um, invite them to pray. I will will ask them if they would like to pray uh, about whatever it is. And I don't pray with all of them, but um, okay. uh, we'll ask their permission sure. uh, or invite them to that. Yeah. I mean, my, my experience is different because I'm... Some, um, but so many people probably that come in are not believers. Mm-hmm. Do you, do you ever have any that get upset about it, or like mm-hmm. I feel like it usually would bring comfort. Whether I've never had anyone say no, okay. uh, to that that mm-hmm. question. Um, I certainly try and be aware and sensitive in the spirit of is this something that sure. this person would want or enjoy or um, uh, receive, um, and, and yeah. to, to do that. So okay. Well, it's such a humble posture, too, because, um, you know, if only more of us would have that courage in more of of our lives, because it doesn't, it's not just a doctor that can ask that, but car mechanic can ask that, Mm -hmm. you know, and hey, well, would you mind? Let's pray about this. It's interesting because just this weekend, somebody locked their keys in the car Uh and um, uh, a friend on the police force came up and they were working on it together and... um, couldn't get the door open. I mean, they were just working for long enough, and they tried several doors. Right. So it's mm-hmm. like, well, they can't get a little. And then somebody, just somebody prayed because there were about four people looking at them from the inside because it was warm. And somebody <laughs> said, well, Lord, just open the door. Ten seconds later, the door's open. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the Lord just wants to be invited in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and nobody was doing anything wrong before then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm not, you know, but there, I was just, I got to be in on that. That was fun to watch. Well, there's certainly been times that I have prayed to myself for someone sure. in a clinical situation. Yeah. Um, yeah. And um, it kind of gets back to the Wayfarer comment. God is working in my life just as much as he's working in the lives of the people I'm caring for. Mm-hmm. And if he um, chooses to, you know, when I, when I pray that bleeding would stop, and mm-hmm. um, it does, I'm yeah. thankful to God for um, him stopping that. So. Yeah, wow. yeah. Well, we are we marvel at what we've learned about what's going on in the womb and what's going on in the room, the delivery room. Yeah. And uh, on from there, you like that little rhyme? Uh, for sure. That's good. <laughs> and Frank, I know you're busy, and I know you're um, bringing excellent care to folks and true shepherding to so many in our community over the years. And uh, in the future, you're taking some seminary classes now because God's saying, well, you know, keep preparing. I love that. Mm-hmm. You're, you're 30 years into your career, and God's got you preparing still more. So thank you for taking the You're time welcome. to shepherd Thanks for us. having me. Yeah. It's good to be here. So our blessings to you and to Debbie thank and you. everyone. Thank you for joining us here, and we can't wait to be back together. In the meantime, keep encountering grace because God's out there all the time. Thanks. 
This is a ministry of Grace Fellowship Church in Kinston, North Carolina. Visit gracekinston.org or follow us on Facebook and Instagram.